Welcome. You're listening to WO Voices, a podcast series from Women in Optometry magazine. I'm Marjolyn Bailefeld, editor of Women in Optometry. We're delighted you could join us. We're here today with Dr. Julie Steinhauer of Glen Carbon, Illinois. She's a developmental optometrist and leads the team at Vision for Life. Dr. Steinhauer is becoming known worldwide for working with children and adults with various vision problems that affect their ability to read, write, comprehend, uh, and, and perform in sports, in school, on the job. Dr. Steinhauer, thank you for being here. Oh, Marjolyn, thank you so much. I appreciate that you uh, gave me this opportunity to be on here with you today. Vision for Life has, um, it's not a traditional vision therapy practice, I would say. You uh, talk to us about the syntonic phototherapy. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we maybe are not your traditional office for certain, and uh, we use photosyntonics or light therapy as a means of correcting various things with our patients. I've been using that probably about the last eight to nine years. And so every patient that I work with without fail, we use the syntonic therapy with them. And really what it does is it's kind of our means to turning on the light switch to the brain. Um, It is basically the ability to electrically change some of the output of the brain So the brain learns how to process information visually on a much higher level than what it could without this. And so vision therapy is a bit more mechanical in nature. And I like to explain to people that it's kind of like the OT or PT um, for the brain and the eyes, where the light therapy is kind of kickstarting the brain. It's almost the electric shock to the brain to tell the brain what it needs to do and what it needs to learn that you're coming alongside with vision therapy, the mechanical kind of part of it, and teaching the brain to learn new things. So how does it work? Is it painful? (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. You just wear glasses that look like you're wearing 3D glasses and they have different colored filters. Now, some practices use a, um, it looks like a long tube. If you can kind of imagine like a PVC pipe of about four feet long or three feet long that you look into that has colored lights at the end of it. Some offices use that. We do not. We use um, strictly just the goggles, but our patients wear the goggles. They take them home and use them there um, at their leisure five days a week, usually about seven to 15 minutes at a time. And when they wear the goggles, they can either look at a light like a small, uh, maybe a tabletop um, one, you know, a 40 watt bulb, or they can look at a light that's like a round circular light on their ceiling. They can even look outdoors, not at the sun, but just at the ambient light from the sun. And it will it will they'll be able to see a different color. So depending on what filter they're wearing, if it's blue, well, it will turn everything blue looking. And each color does something electrically different for the brain. It's not painful. It's really enjoyable. A lot of our adults and kids think it's kind of the coolest, most fun part of the therapy program. Um, it's super relaxing. Some people go to sleep. Um, but we ask when they're doing this that they stay visually active and mentally active. So there has to be a level of cognition involved while they're actually doing the procedure. And the more mentally active they are um, or cognitively in tune they are and the more visually in tune they are, the more it causes the brain to send off um, nerve impulses. 
So taking a walk is better than watching TV? Well, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> For certain. Yeah, we definitely want our patients outside. We limit TV time and we limit things like, um, you know, all screen time. Um, and it's a real challenge. I mean, it's a challenge for myself, you know, I'm preaching it to our patients and, and a lot of my business is done on a phone. So, you know, I get it. And the schools are moving away from real books in the hand to, you know, computers. So I consider it part of therapy. It certainly is part of our program. Now, obviously a lot of offices have various you know, definitions of vision therapy and, and some offices believe that uh, just to strictly computerized programs um, are vision therapy. And our mode of practice is a lot different. Our thought process about this is a lot different. So I really fully believe that syntonics has to be a part of therapy because, again, um, if you can get an outcome faster with better results and it's more lasting, then why would you not do it? And so for us, that's really what syntonic light therapy has become for us. Um, it is certainly something that has progressed along our patients' progress. You know, I, I was blessed yesterday. I got to see notes come across my desk with a young lady who's 32 years old who uh, she was doing a charity event, my gosh, and she agreed to do a boxing charity event and got hit in the head, sustained a horrible um, brain injury, ended up having a stroke and lost some of her visual field. And so she lost the left side of her visual field for each eye. So she has a left monomous hemianopsia. And I got to see yesterday after two months of doing light therapy and vision therapy with us that her field is restoring and she's gaining parts of that back. And so why would I not do that? That would take me years maybe to obtain those types of results in a patient with that level of traumatic brain injury to just do the mechanical kind of, you know, OTPT like for the brain vision therapy stuff that we would normally do. So in order to kind of say, I can really change the electrical output, the blood volume and blood flow in the brain so that we can restore things that have been lost. Well, why wouldn't you? Right. So I understand certainly for, for traumatic brain injury, that sounds, um, what a, what a, remarkable case that must have have been to see to see those results but um what about for younger people who maybe it's not a uh, a a brain injury but some other vision issue one of the things that we believe is that pretty much everybody who walks into the practice has had some level of brain injury. And this just comes with years of practice and working with patients and seeing like, how do they respond and what are their brains doing and what are, how are they dealing with what's going on? So it doesn't matter if the child is three years old, which we work with tons of three-year-olds. It doesn't matter if they're, you know, 16 or 25, or if I have someone who's 82 in the practice. Everybody has sustained some level of brain injury of something going on in their lives. And so we treat all of our patients that way. So even the child that comes in who looks like a run-of-the-mill tracking problem, maybe convergence or lining the eyes up kind of a problem, uh, we're still going to treat them with syntonic phototherapy because ultimately their brain did that a result, as a result of a problem. And so it's kind of like a brain injury that they're didn't develop the ability to do it the right way. And so if we treat them in that regard, boy, our patients have amazing progress and we see it a lot faster. So some of our kids that, you know, hate reading, don't, they're not comfortable with it. Um, we can actually see them picking up and reading things like road signs or books or 
um, having more interest in it just within sometimes within three or four sessions with light therapy. Um, now, realistically, most of the time it's within about two months, but it can happen fast depending on what level of excitement and and enthusiasm the child has for wanting to read and to get better and maybe the emphasis placed on it within the family. You you decided to focus specifically on develop, developmental vision care some some years ago, correct? Yes, correct. And what made you decide that this was going to be the, the, the focus of your practice? Well, there, I guess there's a story behind that too, isn't there always? <laughs> but <laughs> I love stories, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, um, from a young age, I wanted to be a pediatrician and, uh, just to cut through some of that, I had some vision issues myself. And when I was in college, I studied so much. I was like the closet studier and, you know, my friends would be out having a great time. And I was, you know, on hour 42 of studying for this test that I was panicked about in AMP. And, um, when I finally decided that I wanted to go into optometry school, I really just thought, you know, there's just no hope. I'm not, obviously I'm not going to be a pediatrician now. I kind of let that dream go. And I didn't like anything to do with developmental vision. In fact, I kind of hated it. (laughs) Um, You know, it wasn't that interesting to me, but then I had an instructor my fourth year of optometry school who just changed everything. You know, she was a visionary and she really brought to my attention how, I could have a pediatric practice in optometry and I could really kind of marry my dream of working with children with what I had decided to do for my career path. And ultimately that was exactly what I was intended to do. And so, uh, you know, our practice was probably about 85% working with children and developing their vision. And now as we've kind of branched worldwide a bit more, Uh, We do have a lot of patients coming from all over the place of various ages. So we're working with a lot more adults now. Probably about 40% of our practices become adults. And a majority of that is probably strabismus and amblyopia. So is, uh, I I understand that there's a college of syntonic optometry. Is is this mainstream? Well, I don't know that I would, I, I guess that's kind of a trick question there. <laughs> it certainly is mainstream and becoming a lot more common in developmental vision. And so any of the doctors who are, you know, out there kind of doing what I'm doing with vision therapy, they're they're hearing about it more. They might not be doing it. There's actually just a very small percentage of doctors who are develop consider themselves developmental doctors that are actually doing this. But it is becoming well known. So, you know, you go to a course for um, your continuing education, and now it's more likely that you're going to see something in there about syntonic light therapy um, at this meeting than what you ever have in the past. So it's becoming more mainstream. And certainly with the doctors who do this, I mean, we just eat it, breathe it, sleep it, and think it's the best thing ever, and everyone knows about it. So, <laughs> um, so for us, it's just, you know, something that we would never practice without now. How did it come onto your radar? Well, that's a good question. I had a practice when I was in Jerseyville, Illinois, initially, and um, this was just kind of a generalized practice. I mean, I, I sold glasses, and I we did disease management. We kind of did everything, and we also did the developmental vision side, and I was just really, you know, I, I got to the point where I felt like, gosh, there's got to be something else. This just repetitive nature of teaching someone on tracking and convergence is just, 
you know, it takes forever with some patients and they don't seem to get it. There's got to be some missing links. And I kept hearing about this light therapy stuff and I was really intrigued by it. And I thought, hmm, I don't know if, you know, the area that I'm in is really going to be very supportive of this. It seems a little <laughs> out there. It seems a little woo woo. It seems a little different, you know, and I was like, oh, I don't know how it's going to come across. And, and I just decided, and I'm, I'm probably say, you know, God's grace had me just thinking, who cares? You need to do this because this is what's going to be best for your patients. And this is now I know it's definitely the way that I had to go because so many things have amazingly come out of using it. But I went to a seminar. So the College of Syntonics, and they put on a seminar and I went to one in Chicago. And um, there were a couple different meetings that we went to. Um, I went, I think, two different years. Uh, so the first year was kind of general stuff. And then the second year was more, you know, hard level cases that we got to learn about. And that's how I got my start. And I went home and I, you know, I made things. I made my own tools and gadgets and devices, everything that I could to possibly get it started the easiest way, you know, quickly. And that's how I got my start. I still have some of the old pieces. I actually made syntonics filters out of PVC pipes that we would put on a lamp and people stared at. And the the colored filters were theater gels that I got from a local theater company, you know, that they would put in the lights and they would shine and make the cast down uh-huh. on the stage look pink or blue. And, and that's yeah. how I started. Um, earlier, you said that you treat m- most patients who come into your office as if they've had some brain injury or, or insult mm-hmm. um, or, or, or something. Do, do you think that... Um, Similarly, the level of undiagnosed vision problems in the, I guess we can call it the, you know, non-identified population, the, the, the sort of the, the, the general population is, is higher than, than we might think. Absolutely. We have, you know, we have gone into schools and done screenings um, with entire schools. So we might screen um, depending on the size of the school. And we typically do this with private um, private institutions, but anywhere from 100 students to 400 students. And, you know, the results are the same. It doesn't matter if there's 100 students or if there's 400. We are doing very specific tests that will tell us whether or not there's visual skills that will affect their ability to read, learn, uh, write, uh, perform in a classroom, even perform on the sports field if they're an athlete. And it doesn't matter, again, the size. It doesn't matter the, the area that we're in. Um, economically, uh, we just see across the board that what ends up happening is we've got at least 80% of kids in a classroom that have some undiagnosed visual problems, but then as many as 90 to 93% have other things that we really fly under the radar. No one would ever catch them. Um, and so you've got, you know, it was, you see statistics that, that, like 25% of people have visual problems that's kind of all over the the internet. But we find more, again, in the realm of like 80 to 93% of all people, doesn't matter where they come from, who they are, what their age range is, none of that. There's a lot of visual problems out there going undiagnosed. And because we're not really necessarily looking at binocular vision too much. And uh, it's pretty phenomenal that there's that level of problems existing and people have, most of the time they have no idea. Do we have the 
bandwidth to work with that number of people as an as an as a profession? No way. <laughs> no way. You know, I I I think that there are so many doctors that are out there that are worried about like, oh, don't cut into my little corner of my, you know, pie here in existence. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, if you really knew what you had to work with, there's no corner of the pie. The world is endless. And so, you know, there's, we do not have enough doctors Mm -hmm. doing what I'm doing. A couple of years ago, because of our marketing and advertising outreach that we were doing, I had moved locations. I had walked away from my generalized practice. I don't see patients on an annual basis anymore at all. I am fully 100% committed to um, developmental and functional vision and vision rehabilitation. So that's all that we do. And so we got online and we started taking advantage of all of this great technology. And, And we were probably about the first ones who got on there and started making YouTube videos. And we have around I don't know, 400 or something like that now, but 300 maybe, I don't know. Um, But we started getting patients and potential patients contacting us from all over. And I'm thinking, I can't serve someone in Mumbai. How on earth am I going to work with someone who's in Ghana? I, you know, I was getting messages Mm -hmm. and phone calls even, and my heart would just break. I mean, there were days that I just walked away crying because I'm thinking, these people are telling me all these tales of how they've, you know, been blind their whole life or, you know, they've never, people have made fun of them because of their eye turn. And I mean, it was heart wrenching. And about a year and a half ago, I started thinking, you know, there's got to be a way to serve them. So we started doing two things. One is that a lot of these clients will actually fly into our practice and get evaluated at our clinic, stay with us for a couple of days and begin treatment in our office. And then we'll support them online. And now when we do that, And we meet with them on a video conference Mm -hmm. online and they will coincide treatment with their doctors there locally. So we'll meet with them or we'll send them information about how the patient's progressing on our end. And then we require their doctor to give us feedback on their end Um, because it's not feasible for some of these patients to come back and forth from India all the time. And some of the clients find us when there's nothing, there's Mm -hmm. no hope, there's no anything. They can't come to us because they don't have the funds, but they have a doctor who's willing to help them out. And so we'll work with their local doctor to provide support with them and help get them on the pathway of better vision. So we kind of provide the framework, but we utilize and rely heavily on whatever doctors we can. And sometimes it's very rudimentary. Sometimes it's really tricky um, in third world countries, what information we can get that's even something we can process because of, you know, it's um, different language base and different culture base. And, um, but we are trying to provide as much support as we can. Dr. Steinhauer, do you have a, a favorite patient story? I mean, is there, is there one that just kind of, you know, comes to your mind periodically as, oh my gosh, that patient. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have, obviously I have a lot of those, but I would say one of my oldest and first patient experiences that I'll never forget was a young lady. She was probably eight or nine years old who came to see me and her family, you know, was coming to me out of desperation saying she's, you know, eight, nine years old. She's not reading unless the word is two or three letters in length. And, you know, she seems like she's super smart, but we just can't, we just can't break through. We don't know what's going on. She's been tested for everything possible and they really don't find much going on with her. And I found out that she actually had convergence insufficiency and double vision. So she was diplopic. And 
what happened was that occurred for her anytime she looked at anything near. And so here's this really smart kid, but she was just, she was like the biggest chip on your shoulder child. She walked in, she was like a little tomboy. She was all angsty and she was always, you know, um, dropping comments and saying things that were not so kind to me. And, and whenever I would get her to work on vectorgrams and things of that nature, she would just, she was just brutal. (laughs) She would just tear me apart. And a lot of times when she would leave, I would just cry crocodile tears because I was thinking, I am so mean. She hates me. And I remember the day that she came in carrying a Dr. Seuss book and she had a smile on her face (laughs) and she read out of the book to me. And how she changed after that. amazing. And how she became like a little lady. And I started seeing her wearing cute clothes and dresses. And she took care of her appearance. And she changed her hairstyle and different things that, you know, it, it literally, because it boosted her confidence so much, it changed everything. And that one I'll, I'll never forget. That's a great story. Dr. Steinhauer, what is your YouTube channel? Well, if they, um, if anyone is searching for me, if they just type in my name, um, Dr. Julie Steinauer YouTube, everything's going to pop up. Um, they can go to our website too, which is vision4forlifeworks.com. And our, all of our YouTube stuff is right there as well. So they can access it either way. But um, clearly from the YouTube side, they can subscribe and get our videos that we put out. Um, we put out about three videos every single month. And um, so there's quite a few out there and we cover a huge variety of topics. Very interesting. So that's visionforlifeworks.com. Yes, correct. Great. Dr. Steinhauer, thank you so much for being with us and telling us these uh, these stories. That that little girl, she's going to stick with me all day, too. <laughs> well, awesome. Marjolyn, thank you so much. It was truly a pleasure, and I appreciate you taking your time to do what you do for the profession and um, for everything that you do to just further education f- um, for everyone. And uh, thank you so much for allowing me to be on today. Thank you for listening. I hope you join us again next time on WL Voices. If you'd like to be part of our podcast series, please contact us. You can email us at wovoicesonline at gmail.com or via our website, womeninoptometry.com, on Facebook at WL Magazine, or through Twitter or Instagram at WomenODs. See you next time.